Hello and welcome everybody. As always, I'm your host, David Conklin. Today, I have Benson Varghese here with me, the always fashionable and ever modest Benson <laughs> Varghese. Benson, isn't it true that you are the greatest attorney on the planet? Some would say. Some would say. See, didn't I tell you he was modest? <laughs> I'm excited to sit down with David Conklin today. David has over a decade's worth of experience in law enforcement, has handled hundreds of DWI investigations, and he's going to share with us the things that we need to be looking for as we look at DWI investigations that were conducted, officer videos, and what you need to look for when you're looking at those field sobriety tests. David, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm just so excited to sit down with you because we get to talk about something that crosses people's minds often, and yet it's not often that you get to hear from an insider. So I'm going to start with your background. You were in law enforcement. How long were you in law enforcement? 12 years. And as a peace officer, sounds like I'm cross-examining <laughs> you. As a peace officer, did you conduct DWI investigations? I did, quite a few. Quite a few. In fact, you were you were given some awards based on how many and the quality of investigations you did. That's correct. Yeah, I, I believe I got four consecutive years uh, the MAD award for DWI enforcement. So four years in a row, you were recognized, and this was a pretty busy police department. Yes, we didn't have a DWI squad uh, like some bigger police departments do. So I would do those investigations just on top of everything all the other normal patrol work, answering calls and, uh, you know, assisting other officers and things like that. So over the course of 12 years, would you say you investigated hundreds or thousands of DWIs? Investigated probably close to a thousand. Um, actual arrests was, I believe it was somewhere around 400. Okay. And I'm glad that's the ratio for you because that means you were using your tests and your discretion to make appropriate decisions and not just try to rack up the number of arrests you could get. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, I definitely didn't want to uh, get in the courtroom and, uh, you know, have somebody like you say, oh, you know, to, to hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. right. Um, but more importantly, it was, you know, I mean, you're talking about people's freedom and a lot of officers, I don't think understand or care necessarily about the impact that an arrest will have on someone and their livelihood, their potential future, you know, financially, all that. Certainly to me, you're an expert in the area of DWI investigations. And now you share your expertise in many investigative roles, but one of them is to share with defense attorneys and even people accused on issues that may have occurred in their DWI investigations. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes I get called for a consultation uh, from an attorney like, you know, can I can I look at this case a little bit, see if there's anything that, you know, the officer may have done wrong or, uh, you know, something that might have not followed along with NHTSA's guidelines. Absolutely. So when you talk about NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, every refresher course that you went to, they were teaching you the same thing. Because the way these tests were standardized and designed, it hasn't changed over time. 
Right. It's, it's changed very little. Um, I believe whenever I went to Academy, uh, which was in 2011, they were teaching about, they were teaching from the 2006 NHTSA manual. And I believe they only updated it in 2013 or 14. I can't remember. But when you are, when you go through your basic academy and you learn from a specific year manual, that's how you're supposed to do the tests, you know, in perpetuity. Right. So, yeah. And I certainly remember looking at the 2006 and 2013 manuals because they come out somewhat irregularly because, again, not much is changing. Right. I know my personal experience and what I've seen on videos. But as you go back and you review videos now, do you find officers making mistakes on field sobriety tests? I would even find officers doing mistakes on them when I would back them up. You know, one of the most common mistakes uh, that I would always see is when they're doing the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. Uh, and officers tend to rush through that series of the SFST battery way too fast. As an officer, you're diminishing your ability to read those tests accurately. Absolutely. And without getting bogged down in the details, you're first checking to see if the person's a good candidate for the test. Then you have three parts to the horizontal gaze nystagmus. Each one of them requires each eye to be checked twice. And the lack of smooth pursuit, the first part of the test, has a specific amount of time it takes for you to move the stimulus. For distinct and sustained nystagmus, the second part, you have to hold the stimulus for a minimum amount of time. So as you review these videos, one of the things you're looking for is, are they doing the right number of passes? Was this person a good candidate to take the test? Are they taking as long as they're supposed to for that test? Right. And are they holding the stimulus, whatever that is, at an appropriate distance? You know, it's supposed to be between 12 and 15 inches from the bridge of someone's nose. So are they doing that appropriately? Also, it's supposed to be slightly above eye level. That way you can see the white underneath someone's eye and uh, that helps you see, you know, what their eye is doing much more clearly. So you and I both understand the importance of administering this test correctly. But would you also agree that most attorneys reviewing these cases and certainly most jurors, because no one's educating them, don't understand that first test, what people call the eye test? Right. And, you know, one of the common misconceptions is that it's a vision test. Right. And it's not a vision test at all. You know, uh, horizontal gaze nystagmus, it, it's an involuntary jerking of the eye as it gazes towards the side. And it's the reason that this is the most critical test is because that reaction is involuntary. There's no amount of trying that you can do as the subject of that test to correct it. Right. So... I see a lot of jurors whenever I would testify, they just kind of glaze over and it kind of, it goes above their head because it is a very specific thing. Um, especially if you are explaining it well, there's still some misunderstanding about what it actually is. Right. And I know from my experience, you're somewhat of an anomaly to understand DWI investigations the way that you understand it and your ability to talk to people about it. But it really takes two parts. It takes a good defense attorney to kind of set the stage for you and keep that jury engaged in what you're saying and break it up in a way that they're listening and understanding, particularly if the officer cuts some corners. Yes, absolutely. It There's 
so much of it really is dependent on the attorney. You know, if you're the officer who is being questioned by the prosecutor, if they're not asking the right questions or setting it up for you to properly explain it, that's a problem. And then conversely, if you're testifying for the defense, if they're not giving you the opportunity to explain it the way that you need to, then that can hinder you. That's where you get opened up to, you know, objections for narrative or whatever, whatever else it could be. Absolutely. I've always wanted to ask this next question because when I watch these videos and I talk to people who have been in this situation, most of them feel like they're required to do field sobriety tests. We both know they're not actually required to, but is it part of your training to ask the questions in such a way that it doesn't even dawn on the person that this is a request, not really an order? Right. You know, I think a lot of that comes... Uh, just trial by fire as an officer, you're, you're having to learn how to get people to do things in a way that's not threatening, in a way that's not overbearing or anything like that. Managing people is a very difficult thing. And especially when you're dealing with somebody who's, you know, potentially intoxicated, that, that can become a challenge in and of itself. So I would never say I would like you to do some of these tests or anything like that. Once I finish my questions to find out have they been drinking and all of these things, I would just start doing the tests on them and they would just comply. Unless it was someone who had been down that road before and they had gotten a DWI and they knew what was about to happen. Uh, but if you had never gone through any of that before, most people generally generally comply with a police officer's instructions. All right. So much of what you have to do as a police officer is maintaining control of the situation. And I'm always more aware of and even more concerned of, of the officers who know that by being nice, they can get people to do a lot more. They're direct, but they're still nice, right? We've all seen the a-hole cops that aren't really doing much to further their investigation. Sometimes they're just, they're not good at what they do. Right. They don't practice it. So many officers don't like doing DWIs and they're not really interested in it. And they don't practice that part of their craft. As you look at the next two tests, the walk and turn and the one leg stand, we call those divided attention tasks or tests. Why is that and what significance do those tests hold? So the purpose of divided attention tests, right, is because driving is a divided attention test. You know, you're you're doing a lot of things in a vehicle and a lot of it for most adults is muscle memory now because we've been doing it for so long. But you are, you know, paying attention to your speed. You're paying attention to other vehicles around you, lights, signs, things like that, while also physically manipulating the vehicle you know, with the gas, brake, steering wheel, all of these things. And so the purpose of doing a test like the walk and turn and the one leg stand is that if they can't do these simple tests where they have to remember the instructions that are given and then physically perform those tests, it's seemingly obvious that it's even more dangerous for them to be operating a vehicle that weighs, you know, 3,000 pounds or more. I've heard these words many times on the stand. Out of curiosity, how many times did you have to testify as a police officer? I believe a couple dozen, both in Dallas and Collin County combined. Yeah. And then you add in all the ALR hearings and things like that. A it, lot more with ALR. It adds up. What are the things that you're spotting as mistakes? What should people be on the lookout for? 
Well, like we talked about earlier, the administering of the test too quickly. The most common mistakes that you're going to get the whole time, they are consistently with the HGN test. You know, I've heard the field sobriety tests being described as almost a stair-step process. In other words, if you don't get the clues that you need to reach the decision point on the HGN, you probably shouldn't be doing the walk and turn or eventually the one leg stand. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I think so. The tests are done in a specific order for a reason, right? HGN being the most accurate test that there is because like we talked about, it's an involuntary jerking of the eye that the, the subject can't control that from happening. So if you reach a decision point on HGN, you move to the next most in-depth test, which is walk and turn. There's eight clues on it, right? You have more opportunity to see problems with that divided attention. And then finally, you move on to the one leg stand, which there's only four clues that you're looking for. So it, it goes in order of accuracy. And if you aren't paying attention or you aren't doing something right and you're not seeing those, you shouldn't be moving on. One of the most compelling things then about finding issues with the HGN is the attorney needs to really focus on, hey, if there were mistakes in essentially the foundation of the field sobriety test battery, that really draws into question, should the officer have gone on to the next steps in the investigation? And it's an argument, right? Of course, it'll be up to a judge to decide, okay, or a jury to decide, well, what do I think about all of this? But it's an argument that I think more attorneys need to be aware of. And that's part of what you're doing is you're educating people on these are the issues that you need to be on the lookout for. Right. I mean, it pays to know what should be done and what needs to be done on, on both sides. And part of the reason that I believe that DWIs are so heavily litigated is because that investigation begins and ends with one officer, essentially. Right. And it's incumbent upon that officer to do everything appropriately. And if they're not, and they're leaving themselves open, like most do, to questioning, then that's where a good defense attorney is going to be able to come in and pick those things apart. And you're not going to have a case. Have you seen any issues related to, or have you been trained on any issues related to establishing probable cause in the search warrant affidavits for blood? I have never had an issue. I've only ever heard of few blood warrants that were rejected by a judge. And again, that's because the standard is so low. You know, if you have the odor of an alcoholic beverage and you have admittance of drinking, that's enough. That's enough to get a, a blood warrant because, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, the use of a needle to withdraw blood is minimally invasive. It's not uh, something that's just this egregious overstep in, in someone's Fourth Amendment right. Yeah, that's certainly what the Supreme Court has said. I know there are people definitely afraid of needles that might disagree, but yes, the Supreme Court has said that's a minimal invasion. And the standard, as you pointed out, is probable cause. It's just so low that many reviewing courts are going to say that was good. And we have always had kind of this idea in our law that Getting a warrant is the gold standard because now you've gone to a neutral third party. Um, certainly from the defense side, I'm always going to look at every sentence in that arrest warrant affidavit or search warrant affidavit for blood to see if there are any mistakes. And you want to make perhaps a mountain out of a molehill to see if a judge agrees with you on any issues you might find. But you're right, they're, they're rarer. And now so much is electronic, right? You're typing into your database and a lot of fields are being put not in just 
the offense report, but also the arrest warrant affidavit or search warrant affidavit. Right. And also your DWI narrative is essentially what goes into the warrant. Right. I mean, it's everything leading up to the person refusing. And most officers, they use a template. They, because it's so word heavy and so many parts of it are very specific, they use this template based on the totality of the circumstances and all that. And they might forget to change pronouns. They might forget to change a name in there because it's got John Smith in there, but now they've arrested, you know, uh, Jennifer Davidson. So they're not changing that. And it's like, wait, who are you getting this warrant for? Because you put this in there. And then on top of that, you're waking a judge up at, you know, 3.30 in the morning and they're probably not as acutely focused, some, I would assume. And so they might miss it too. Right. No, absolutely agree. The most common mistakes I see in affidavits supporting a search warrant are kind of those, what we might think of as small mistakes. They didn't correct the name. I've had people not put the date in, although now the form's been updated to almost automatically ask for the date or put in the time that they saw the person driving, right? Those kind of small mistakes might get overlooked initially, but the attorney who's ultimately reviewing the case has to look for those mistakes because if they did put in the wrong person's name, for example, that's subject to attack. Absolutely. And you might get something dismissed or you might get evidence excluded based on finding those mistakes. Out of curiosity, did you kind of keep track of where the 400 cases or so that you were arrested went? Or was it, hey, unless I'm called back for a trial I'm really or an ALR hearing, I'm really not thinking about it post-arrest? I did on some because there were some that were just more interesting than others. Um, other ones, you know, I was just so confident in the decision because I'm sure you've seen this. So many of them are at least twice the legal limit. All right. And those are ones that you can be very confident in knowing they're probably, probably nothing is going to have that case dismissed or whatever. Most of those get pled. But if I ever had something that was really unique where I had a defendant say that they had some sort of um, medical condition, or if it was uh, an arrest of somebody who had a uh, commercial driver's license. Those are things that I would follow up on and check right. with the county in the county records and see what happened with them. Have you ever had to investigate an intoxication assault or intoxication manslaughter case? Yes, several of those. I even had one investigated that uh, the person that was hit on the highway was a pedestrian crossing the highway, which is extremely dangerous. And it just so happened that the driver was intoxicated. And he was traveling home after being out on a Friday night or whatever. Yeah. As much as my role today is to defend cases, you and I are both preaching the same thing. Get an Uber, call a friend, do whatever it takes to not get into a car after you've had anything to drink. It just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense to have to hire someone like me or you, or much more importantly, put someone in harm's way, including yourself. Right. And, you know, for most people, they drink in you know, an area that they frequent, an area that's close to home, the cost of an Uber is, you know, one more drink, right. maybe two, but it's your life. It's other people's lives potentially. And, you know, that arrest can have just a long lasting impact on, on your life as well. What is your stance on footwear? You run into all kinds of footwear, people that are don't have any shoes on. They might have heels on. I mean, it's late at night. People are coming from various places. Um, 
Is it officer discretion as to how that's handled and what's kind of been your stance on it? I left the choice always to the subject. You know, what are you most comfortable in? If I, if it was a woman who was in heels, I would explain to her, Hey, listen, I'm going to have you, you know, do this test. Are you comfortable walking in these heels? Um, or would you be more comfortable barefoot or do you have another pair of shoes in your car? If you leave the option to them as the investigating officer, then there's less for an attorney to attack because you gave them the option. This is what they said that they were more comfortable in. Right. And the reason I want to kind of go through these is to me, you're an officer that cared about your investigations. You cared about the people you were working with in community safety. And as people review their own DWI videos, you're going to run into officers that are very different from you occasionally. People who are, as we talk about a-holes, people that don't offer just reasonable accommodations like, hey, do you want to take your shoes off? Do you want to keep them on, wear something else? Um, officers who don't use their discretion the way that you did. So to say, for you to say, hey, I see someone in a parking lot. I can appreciate the situation. And at least they didn't get on the roadway and put others in danger. Other officers might look at that same situation. I know because I've defended these and say, no, I'm going to charge them with DWI. Right. And they're going to have to deal with all the ramifications of that. Officer discretion comes in quite a bit in a lot of things, um, especially when you're making a judgment call on whether or not someone's intoxicated or what you want to do with that situation. So as people are reviewing their own materials, it may not be a violation of an ITSA policy, but they need to understand, hey, the circumstances in my case could have been a little bit different. Someone needs to talk to the prosecutor about that, see if there's a more reasonable outcome we can come to here. As the investigating officer, you should definitely be thinking about that person who is the subject of your investigation. Because as I've stated, so much is at stake for them. And if you aren't giving them a fair chance to help set them up for success, you have to give them every opportunity to succeed. And when they don't, then that's you know where your arrest decision comes in. As a prosecutor, you were my favorite type of officer. As a defense attorney, you're the type of officer that I hate to see because I know how you're going to play with the jury as opposed to someone who was, you know, had all the attitude and was barking at the person, not sympathetic because jurors, whether they should or not, kind of place themselves in that position and wonder, well, how would I have responded? And if the officer's beating up on the subject, they're going to think, well, I couldn't do that walk and turn. I couldn't do that one leg stand. But if the officer is being exceptionally reasonable, they're going to say, look, the officer gave them every benefit of the doubt. And here's where we are. Of course, nowadays, unlike probably when you started in your career, almost every case has a specimen. You have breath or blood in almost every case. It's so important to be objective as an officer in whatever your investigation is. I mean, even outside of DWIs, but you need to be objective. You should be trying to find evidence that can either be exculpatory or inculpatory, right? If they aren't intoxicated, you should be working just as hard to prove that they're not as you are to prove that they are intoxicated. So it's, I just, I've seen so many people, like you said, the a-hole cops that are just barking at people and uh, juries don't like that, right. you know? They want to see officers out there treating people with respect as they should, as people deserve to be treated with respect um, until the moment that 
that changes, right. right? You know, once somebody tries to start fighting or something like that, things are things are different. But I always told people, it's not a big deal until it is. Right. You should always act like none of this is a big deal until the moment that it is. Is there anything that you wish people knew about defending DWI allegations? I think as far as defending DWIs, just attention to detail. I mean, it goes so far in every aspect of life. Pay attention to the little things that an officer does, or you know, maybe little aside comments that he makes, things like that. A lot of officers, they're so used to having the body camera that sometimes they say the quiet part out loud and they'll make a mistake real early on in the investigation. Or if they call someone else to an investigation, they'll say, you know, yeah, he's intoxicated. You haven't even done any tests or anything like that. And I think that's important for you guys as you're defending that case. If they've seemingly already made up their mind that somebody's intoxicated before they've ever put them through uh, a field sobriety test battery, then what was that test even for? Absolutely. You know, that's such a great point. I've certainly seen it. I've, I've had officers either think they've turned off their audio or just not think about turning it off and say things like the pre-conclusion you talked about, but also, hey, I don't know about this guy, which can be argued both ways. Even stronger statements of, hey, I don't think I've got him on this. Why don't you check? I've heard that. And unfortunately, on an intox manslaughter with multiple deaths, I heard one of the investigating officers make an extremely derogatory comment about the racial makeup of the victims and what their burning bodies smelled like. I mean, wow. it was the worst oh thing gosh. you could imagine. Wow. And it was on audio. And the thing about the details is we went to trial on that case. The prosecutor had no idea that was recorded because it was on the seventh disc and it didn't have any video on it, right? It was the backseat of some patrol car. It was some part of the video that most people wouldn't watch. So the prosecutor went to trial meeting. They put all the work they were ever going to put into it. And they didn't know their officer said this. But on the defense side, you've got to look at everything. You've got to listen to every last minute of tape and not just assume, oh, well, it's the backseat of a car. What's going to happen? Right. So that's, that's actually very valuable advice. I'm glad you brought that up because... That's another thing. If officers are turning off audio or turning off their camera completely or something like that, it'd be a good thing to check uh, check that department's policy right. Right. and see if that's even within policy. Because if they're violating policy, then that opens them up for more scrutiny in that, you know, for you to bring up to a jury. Absolutely. And then you're right. A lot of times if they have turned off their body cam, but you're still on scene, your dash cam is still rolling front and back. And they might be just going to the back of their Tahoe and putting something away or whatever and making a little aside comment to themselves, not thinking that that camera inside the car is picking up, you know, a horrible statement like right. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been so valuable. I truly appreciate your time. What I want to end with is for our audience to know a little bit more about you and your investigative team. And I know you guys cover a lot more than just DWI. So tell me a little bit about you, your practice, and what y'all are doing now. Yeah, so my uh, wife and partner, Kayla Walker, we started our own private investigations company last year, uh, April of 2022. And it's called Private Investigation Endeavors. And we do the vast majority is criminal defense work. Um, 
DWIs are actually a very small portion. I get called, you know, maybe just for some very specific things on that. Most of it is, you know, sex, sex assault cases, uh, murders, ag assaults, family violence stuff, things where police didn't know of other people that they could contact. And as you know, in a lot of domestic cases, the backstory is important. And I know as an officer, when we would go to investigate domestic cases, people would be trying to tell us all the time, oh, well, last week this or whatever. And the immediate go-to from almost every officer is, no, no, we're just here about tonight. What happened tonight? Right. And whereas that's true, in a sense, all of that backstory is important, Absolutely. right? Precipitating factors leading up to an event matter, right? And so those are the kinds of things that we investigate. Those are things that we look into for defense attorneys. How do people find you if, they, if, for example, a defense attorney wants to bring you into a case? Do you have a website or a number that they can call? Absolutely. You can go to www.piendeavors.com. You can find us on Facebook. If you just look up Private Investigation Endeavors, uh, Twitter and Instagram at PI Endeavors. And you can always reach us by email, david at piendeavors.com or kayla at piendeavors.com. Perfect. And your organization is growing? Yes. So we started, it was just Kayla and I. Uh, Since then, we've hired three other investigators. Uh, We have an investigator in the Arlington area, an investigator in East Texas, and we have uh, a a close friend of ours who's also on our team uh, who speaks Spanish fluently. And so that's obviously a very valuable asset for us to have. So right now is your focus North and East Texas? We are doing all of DFW and we have even worked in some counties outside of the DFW area. I've uh, worked in Smith County out in Tyler uh, and Raines County, which is also East Texas. Um, Worked in the Stephenville area, I can't remember what county that is. Um, Erath, I believe. Um, And so, and even done cases over like in Granbury in that area as well. Okay. And you've already been called to testify in defense cases. Yes, I have several times. I was actually doing that yesterday. Well, we really appreciate you and the background that you bring um, as someone who has needed investigators over many years. I know it's hard to find someone who is very good at their job, but is also able to communicate well. So I'm just thankful that you were willing to spend your time with us today and talk to the audience. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and thanks for having me. Absolutely, thank you. Appreciate it. Everyone, thanks for watching The Breakdown. As always, I'm your host, David Conklin. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're the host? Yeah, this is my show. Whose office are we in anyways? This is, get out of my <laughs> office. I'm, I'm done with this guy. Cut, wrap, wrap it. Well, David, now that we've completely confused everyone on who the host of this show is, why don't you take it away and uh, thank our audience for watching and tell them what they should do. Sure. Well, listen, I'm so glad that you could all be with us today. Again, Benson Varghese, the greatest attorney on the planet, even though he won't fully admit it. Benson, thanks for being here so much. I think you did a great job. And as always, you look great. Well, hey, I appreciate it. Uh, we might share a tailor because I can say the same for you. <laughs> be sure to like and subscribe if you found the content to be valuable. Thanks, guys. Thank you.